So it's about finding the right level of stress with the movement to match the level of readiness that the individual has so that we can help them progress, as opposed to saying that movement is entirely off limits, no matter if it's light or it's moderate or it's heavy, or that drill you saw on, on Instagram is you can't do that at all. Where's the experimentation then? Welcome to How Do You Feel, a podcast with info and inspo to help you tune in to your fitness, nutrition, and mindset. I'm your host, Casey Zavaleta, and together we'll explore how we can optimize our physical and mental health so that we radiate positivity and happiness from the inside out. Hi guys, welcome to this week's episode of How Do You Feel? If you're new to the podcast, I'm so glad that you found the show. If you're a regular listener, then welcome back. On this podcast, we talk about all things fitness, nutrition, wellness, mindset, and we look at things from the lens of dialing into how you feel. Instead of focusing on external aesthetic goals for yourself, can you tune into your wellness thinking about how you're feeling and dialing into more internal things? I was trying to come up with some sort of life update to share with you guys before this episode, but I'm kind of drawing a blank. It's February. There isn't that much exciting going on in my life. Eric's in LA for the month. Lucky him in the sunshine. I'm just hanging, getting the new house together, biking everywhere, which everyone's giving me a lot of shit for because it's so cold out, but I actually really love it. I find that if you just bundle up and prepare for the cold and the weather, that it's a really, really nice way to be active outside. I actually find it way more enjoyable than walking somewhere, and I I feel like I'm way less cold. Anyways, I feel like that's the most exciting thing that's going on in my life right now, so I'm just going to launch right into this episode because this episode is very exciting. This week on the podcast, I have quite a treat for you guys. I sat down and talked to Paul Hines, who is a coach, personal trainer, and powerlifter in Toronto, Ontario. He's the founder of Hines Performance. He's a personal training specialist, strong first level one, and an FRC mobility specialist. Paul loves coaching. This profession has allowed him to work with people from all walks of life with many, many goals. And no matter what his client's goal is, Paul helps them get there in a safe and sustainable way. He's someone that I look up to in the fitness industry for both his knowledge and his soft skills and the way that he approaches training his clients and his genuine care for his clients, which you will 100% hear come across in this episode. We talked about lots of good stuff, whether you are a trainer or a client. I think there's so much to glean from this episode. So I hope that you guys enjoy my conversation with Paul Hines. Hi, Paul. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Casey. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm really excited to have you on and chat with you today. Yeah, I'm excited too. Cool. Let's start off by getting the listeners to know you a little bit. Mm -hmm. Tell us how you got started into fitness. Well, without going into a long story, I, my background was not in fitness. So I was like many people who get into it. I think they started doing something else and then they found a love for it and then they transitioned to that. Mm-hmm. So I was uh, an art school student. Humber what College, kind of art? Uh, visual and digital arts. So I cool. paint and draw. I don't do it anymore. Um, my mom is very upset about that. <laughs> <laughs> do you miss it? A little bit. But I graduated from a diploma program, and that was when I st- started training. So I actually started training myself when I was 20. Mm-hmm. I was very, very late into 
the gym aspect of physical fitness. I was I played a lot of sports, so I was very familiar with that aspect. But mm-hmm. I never had any real direction or coaching. I was just kind of just trying to figure it out on my own. Like I think many people are going in the gym, reading stuff online, and trying to make sense of all the information, which is even more like the pool of information is even bigger now than it was mm-hmm. back then. That's a good point. Um, I realized I wasn't going to uh, make a living with art. And so I went to work in construction. I worked in construction for five or so years doing renovations and building houses and stuff. And then I had a kind of an epiphany uh, about four or five years in where some injuries that I had were not really being helped by the physical uh, labor job that I was doing. Mm -hmm. And so I told my boss, I'm like, you know what? I want to try like, I want to try and see if I can make it work in this industry, which is fitness. And he was very understanding. He was like, yeah, sure, go go ahead and try it. And, and so I did. And that's how I got my start. I went from, you know, very stable income to no income, worked in a boot camp, teaching boot camps, got my certification, started going to seminars and networking and like reading as much as I could. Mm-hmm. And uh, all the while still training myself. And I had friends tell me, you know, you should go back to school for kin. And I weighed the cost benefit of doing that. And I just wasn't, I didn't feel confident that I, that was the path for me. But long story short, like, you know, I'm, I'm in coaching now for, this will be eight years, I think. Three of them now are on my own, running my own business. And uh, it's been great. It's been a wild ride. But I took basically my my knowledge and and my my experience with myself. And I think what many people do, I did, I did as well, which is transfer that into ultimately like a career. So. Right. Wow, you have so many skills. Art, <laughs> home renovations. Yeah, yeah, I can fitness. I can build furniture really well, and I can uh, probably draw your kid a, a cartoon that they'll be impressed <laughs> with. And yeah, I, I with the art thing, it's funny because people ask me if I still use it now, and uh, I say no. But the aspects of learning that I got mm-hmm. from getting formal training in how to draw and how to paint, the way to look at things the way to see space, the way to see contrast, like the mm-hmm. just picking out details. And I was always a very detail-oriented artist. Like I would copy images mm-hmm. and uh, was quite good at that. You asked me to come up with something on my own and I felt helpless, right? Um, but now I take that same approach, like that creativity and that that ability to see stuff and look at things a bit more deeply uh, in a detailed way. And I apply that to coaching. So one of my favorite quotes from my, one of my professors was, draw what you see, not what you think you see. And now I apply that to coach what you see, not what you think you see. Because oftentimes our our biases and our own experiences can cloud the lens through which we're viewing the person in front of us, be it a client or someone we see on the internet or, you know, whatever. And we don't really see the whole picture and it's impossible to see the whole picture. The goal is to make as few assumptions as possible Mm. about what's actually happening. And if you're working with someone, involve them in the process so you can actually get better information. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. How often do we assume or do we overcoach things, right, that we're not even seeing? Yeah. People have such a tendency to make lots of assumptions yeah. and, yeah, don't simplify it down. And I think part of that is our training, you know, and our personalities. Like most trainers are, are fixers, I guess, by nature. or We want to problem solve. Like that's part of coaching, right? But, yeah, there becomes a point where you can start to create problems where there really aren't problems. For and sure. that's you got to figure that out over time, What that? what's the right balance of coaching versus, you know, not assuming. For sure. And if you're trying to fix without the other person being involved, it's never going to work anyway, 100%. right? So you'll, you'll usually get a subpar result. Yeah, yeah, for sure. What is it about coaching that you love so much? 
this could be a whole other podcast in and of itself. Um, <laughs> Uh-oh. Are we going to have to have yeah, you back we're gonna for, like, extend this. Here? Yeah, we're going to have part one, part two, part three. No, um, the things I love most about coaching is it just highlights how important it is for us to learn and grow as a result of being around other people. Mm. So the whole idea of, like, someone who's self-made, like, I figured it out all on my own, it's kind of like a bit of a fallacy because everyone had help at some point in time. Every athlete who's like accomplished something great has had coaches or many coaches throughout their career. Um, you have business coaches, you have life coaches, you have all these aspects of people helping other people get to where they want to go. Mm-hmm. And so if I could summarize it with that, that's why it's, that's what I love about it is I get to help people figure out what the path looks like for them. And I'm not the, uh, I, I don't do that from the place of I'm the main star of the show. I do that from the place of like I'm in the passenger seat in the car mm-hmm. and I've got like the map or the GPS and you're driving, you know. And so you tell me where you want to go and then I give you the best possible path or route to take to get there. And we might run into detours and we might run into obstacles or there's an accident or, you know, something will happen, but I'm still right there beside you going on that journey with you. Mm-hmm. And that's what I love about that because people often have a hard time asking for help. So when they do ask for help, it's a really big honor. And that's what coaching is. It's, it's, I'm your partner, I'm your sidekick. I'm working with you on this. And the benefits from that, I mean, you know this just as well as I do. Like you see people accomplish some amazing things that they probably would never have accomplished on their own. And that's the reward part of it. There's something to be said, though, for people choosing the right passenger and yeah. the right, the person with the right map. Like, yeah. So there is some ownership that the person has over understanding who they want next to them yeah. and who's going to get them where they actually want to go. 100%. What would you suggest that people look for in that passenger or in that coach? In that coach, yeah. 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 Because not, I mean, I was just speaking about this with my client earlier. She was saying, you know, I have so many friends who they talk about their trainers and they say, oh, well, I can't go back to a trainer because I ended up with a hurt shoulder Mm -hmm. or my back hurts Mm -hmm. or it was a challenging experience for them. Right. So how do you find the right trainer? I think the first one, and this is not the one I think most people think of is, are you a good fit personality wise? You know, mm. are you going to enjoy spending time together? You know, you're committing to working with someone who's a complete stranger when you first meet them. Both, I mean, both of you don't know each other. To potentially two, three, four hours a week together. Like, if you don't jive, like, that's not going to be a good thing. It doesn't even matter how credentialed they are, how educated they are. Yeah. Um, there's a lot to be said for the personal side mm. of personal training. That's a great that point. I think people don't immediately go for I think people inherently understand like if they get along with someone that's cool but they'll place the expertise or someone else's recommendation above how they're feeling you know in their gut Mm -hmm. so to speak so that's the first thing we'll look for I would also look at how do they if they are in social media or if they are represented in in the online sphere or in print um, how do they come across like if you're reading a post by them if you're um, watching a video by them if you're seeing them post about a client of theirs is that the kind of person that you think would be able to help you? Because we know that trainers are obsessed with finding their niche. Mm-hmm. You know, what's your niche? Who's, who, what exact age range of person do you want to work with? And, and what conditions do they have and what goals do they have? And as a result of that, you can see people become very cordoned off and they kind of only appear to work with a certain type of person, right? Why do people do that? 
Uh, business coaches tell them to. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it just seems like there's so much benefit in like working with all different types of yeah. people and all different age ranges. I, I mean, that's 100% va- true, and I would argue for that for most people. I think that depends on where you're at in your career. Where you're at in your career will determine how you decide who you want to work with. So if you're a beginner coach and you know you're just getting started, uh, my advice is don't worry about your niche. Find uh, ways to work with as many people as possible because you need to develop your experience base and you also need to figure out who do I actually get along with the best? Who am I best suited to help? Mm-hmm. Um, and then when you're, you have more experience, you have more career capital, as we would say, you can then go, okay, I really like working with this type of person. You can be more selective. You're probably busier. You're probably more in demand. So you can be, you can say no more, you know, that whole thing of saying no. And that gives you just more confidence that you can actually really, really help the people that are coming to see you because you're deliberately targeting those kinds of people. But as far as like looking for a coach, yeah, make sure you get along with them. If you do meet with them, make sure that the message that they're sending online or wherever you've encountered them is aligns with your own values and maybe you see people that they work with that kind of maybe look like you or remind you of you or have a similar story as you or they've come from you know they maybe had an injury that you're currently dealing with Mm -hmm. and then lastly is when they when they you do work with them is it all about them or is it all about you is the coaching based around helping you succeed or trying to fit you into their list of cues or their favorite exercises or their program that they give everyone else or what they want for you yeah like what the coach has imposed upon you right yeah yeah and if are are they caring more about the goals that they've set for you than even caring to ask you about the goals you've set for yourself Mm. right and that's an example of like coach-centered coaching where it's about me telling you i'm the expert you do what i say um you don't really have a say in the process versus client-centered coaching which is you're involved in the process. Of course you are. You're, you are here working with me. It's not the other way around, right? Mm-hmm. So it's involving the client to the degree that they feel like they're ready to be a part of the process. Mm-hmm. And if someone's very new, it might mean the coach taking the lead a bit more in the beginning, but they're always involving the client and getting them to have, like giving them a say, whether it's, do you want to try this exercise or this exercise? Do you want to go up and wait? Like, I'll never forget one of the clients I used to work with she came to uh, one of the classes I was running, and one time I just sat down with her, I think it was before class, and I asked her, like, you know, you keep coming back, like, what is it about th- this class that you find helpful? One of the things she said, which just really, really stuck with me, was, you don't ever tell me to add weight. You always ask me, like, do you feel like you can go up on, on that? That looked really good, or that looked really strong. Do you want to add five more pounds? And she was saying, you know, I always felt like I had the opportunity to say no, mm-hmm. or I could say yes. And, you know, that's something so simple that if you're a trainer who's been working with people for a long time, you might forget that, like, people just don't know they even have a say in the process. Mm-hmm. But, again, if you're, if you're in the personal training industry, personal is the first word, and it's also a service industry, which means that you're serving other people. You're serving them fitness on a platter. Make sure it's the platter that's the right size for them, mm-hmm. that it has the right ingredients on, on the dish that you've prepared for them, that you check in with them about how the, the meal is going as, you know, meal is metaphor for a session, as they're enjoying it. And you get feedback constantly, yeah. you know. Otherwise, it's, you might as well just be going to uh, an online portal and interacting with a, an algorithm that tells you what your fitness should be like, you know. For sure. That's the important human element of it. Yeah. And it sounds... 
It sounds like it's not a big deal, but it makes the world of difference to a client's experience. It's huge. Yeah, for sure. What would you say are three principles that you live by in the gym? I think one of them is have have a long view of, of this stuff, right? Um, that's something that I apply to my own training, and that's something I, I try to keep under the surface within all the sessions that I do with people. Like one session in and of itself doesn't really make a huge difference. Could be good, could be bad, could be just run of the mill. But that session stacked on top of many others and done over a long period of time can create some pretty incredible things. Mm. And having that presence of mind to shift away from the, this is how I want this to go right now to this is where I want to be long term, you know, how I want to age, how, what I want my body to be able to do, how I want my body to be able to feel, what things do I want to accomplish in the gym and, and what's my expectation like as far as how long those things will take. I think that's definitely one is, is have a long view. Um, number two is, is always be ready and willing to adapt your training, which kind of goes back into number one. But as we both know, like people are not in the same state constantly over time. We're not I mean, robots. You know, we're not robots. Yeah. And even robots break down. So it's kind of like a really weird <laughs> metaphor. But um, people are going to come in and their state of readiness to perform that day is going to be different by the day, by the week, by the month, by the year. And shifting away from a very fixed, you know, adhere to the spreadsheet or adhere to the program no matter what mindset towards a what do I feel like my body needs today? What do I feel like I'm ready to do both mentally like and physically because they're tied together is a very big component of coaching. Now, you want to make sure you're programming in a way that allows for that kind of adjustment while simultaneously making sure that you're teaching someone to to know how to rev up or rev down based on the day. Right. Um, how do you help someone establish their readiness to train? Are you asking certain questions? Yeah. Are you asking them to reflect? What do you do? Yeah. Well, I, we track simple things, sleep, stress level, ask them how their nutrition was that day. I think you guys do the same thing. Um, and then honestly, a lot of it's just knowing the person and, and working with them for a while. Like I think after you work mm-hmm. with someone for a, quite a bit of time or not even that long, you can tell they come in and there's something up or you come in and they're just not in their normal mood. If they're really talkative, they're not talking as much. Or if they're really high energy, they're kind of low energy. You can figure, okay, you know, maybe I had this plan for them today, but they don't necessarily know that. You can ask some questions, actually see if what mm-hmm. you're seeing is what's actually happening and not assume, and then make a judgment call if, and ask them again for feedback. How hard do you feel like you're ready to work today? Mm-hmm. And that's an ongoing process. That's not just like a one day thing. For sure. And as you ask those questions, obviously it helps them understand better for themselves. So then they're able to give even better information the next time they come in. Yeah. It's hard, I feel, for beginners sometimes because when you don't know them as well and they don't know their bodies as well, it can be challenging. So there's always for sure a balance between teaching a beginner to follow a program and the benefits of following a program, Mm -hmm. but also to listen to their body and to understand what's going on so it's for sure a process yeah and so that kind of ties into the third principle i have which is developing awareness developing your own internal way of absorbing information we'll say Mm -hmm. knowing how to tune into your body like what are you feeling so i think one of the simplest examples of that is just where do you feel an exercise which if you're teaching a beginner there's of course debate about external versus internal cueing which one is better but a lot of that research is done on athletes who already are very tuned into their bodies, who if you give them a cue like, 
snap your hips or drive the floor away or explode like they know what that feels like because they have this movement base that's just way deeper than the average beginner it's easy for them to check out when they're in the gym having them tune in and focus on like just feel this here where do you, when you're doing a, a lap pull down do you feel that in your lats no okay well, we're going to try adding a bit more load taking more load off changing the position changing the angle giving you a visual breakdown of what that looks like mm-hmm. so that you can tie it to what it feels uh, like all those things are, are helpful and I think that's the big thing because until training is in like the action of moving your body is internalized you won't really connect with a lot of movements even I'm sure you work with clients too who like they're not quite able to translate the picture into like real life mm-hmm. you know into their bodies I don't feel this here they have these parts of their body that they're just not connected to I have one client who I remember when I first started working with her she's like I don't know where my hips are and I'm like what an interesting thing you know right. like I don't think like that because I know where my hips are in space, but she didn't have a conception of where your butt is basically right now. So all the cues you would use of like, oh, bring your hips forward and like, or turn and like, none of those were. It means nothing to her. Wow. Nothing. And so focusing on feeling first and then working towards maybe more external cueing, maybe Mm -hmm. focusing then on more speed or more velocity or all these other fancy things that people debate about on the internet. Can you explain for us quickly the difference between an internal cue and an external cue? Yeah, sure. That's a great question. So an internal cue would be one that draws your attention and your focus towards a sensation that is happening inside your body. So for example, when you're, I'll use an isolation exercise for this example. If you're doing a bicep curl, you're focused on squeezing your bicep at the top when you curl the weight up and then feeling the stretch on the way down. It's very, very targeted. You know, they call it the mind-muscle connection in, in bodybuilding. Whereas an external cue has you focus on how your body interacts with your environment. So if you want to improve uh, force output, you know, speed, you want to move something quickly, you want to throw a ball, you're not thinking about all the internal muscles that are responsible for throwing that ball. You're saying, where is the target? How hard do I have to hit it? And then you check if you're accurate or not. Mm -hmm. So that's giving you external feedback as well. And both have a time and a place. But I find for people who are just starting out, the more information you give them, the harder it is for them to assimilate that and translate that into action. So my programming has changed over the years to to accommodate for that, right? Yeah. And even if it's a bit of a slower process, you can see like each step, every time they get more connected with to their body or a certain part of their body, that translates into like bigger movements. As opposed to trying to teach a bigger movement first, giving them 10 cues to think about and they're feeling overwhelmed already as a side effect of just that, but plus the fact that they're new to this. Yeah, so you're talking a lot about individualizing your cueing style and coaching style to clients. Let's also talk about how you individualize exercise selection for different clients. So how do you go about choosing exercises as you build a program for someone? Yeah, that's a great question. And if you ask 10 different trainers, they'll tell you 10 different answers. The truth is that there's not one right way. This is just the way that I've come to this current iteration of my thought process around programming and it'll probably change in like the next few years right so the first thing that i'll do when i'm thinking about selecting an exercise in a program or how i would choose an exercise is i first think about the individual that i'm programming that exercise for Um, because that's literally the single most uh, defining factor in whether or not this thing i'm putting on a spreadsheet is going to work so based on their assessment which hopefully you're doing if you're coaching people to get some information ahead of time um, I want to know about things like their training history, how experienced are they in the gym, 
when I do the movement screen, how, how aware are they of their body? It's not just about their mobility or their control during exercise. It's also like if I give you a cue and you don't know where that body part is in space or you do something completely different, I make note of that. And I might go, okay, so maybe they don't know where their hips are in space or where their arm is when they're overhead, or they don't even know that their arm is not extended when they're going overhead. So, or I look at how much, you know, how far they get their arm overhead and I see that they don't have full shoulder flexion, which is the action of bringing your arm in line with your ear. So I'm probably not going to start overhead pressing in a, in a vertical motion right now. I'm not going to say we're not going to get there if that's one of their goals, but I need to first coach them a bit on, on what that feels like, mm -hmm. right, to get there. So the individual is the first thing. Second thing is what's their skill level with movement, but also like how simple can we make things? Like I think there's a big sh there was a big shift for a little while away from simplicity because people were like, oh, it's too boring. Oh, no, my clients need more fancy routines or or I'm the trainer and I'm getting bored and I need to like spice things up, which all of us are guilty of, right? Definitely. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Same goblet squats again? Right. Oh, man. <laughs> well, what if you did them with a different tempo or a pause or a bit? Like there's so many variations of that. But yeah. um, there's, there's been a shift away from the, the simple to the complex. And and there's a time and a place for that. But I think if you're, if you're going to start working with a beginner, it's always starting with something simple. Even if you think you look at the page and you're like, there's no way that this is going to be enough. I still think about that all the time when I'm writing programs. There's no way this is enough. And then you get in the first session and you realize you only got through half of that. And you're like, okay, that was definitely enough. Or they tell you, oh, I'm feeling it t the next day. Okay, you know, you, but you're not in pain or they're not super sore. Mm -hmm. Great, you know. And so that kind of tees into the next last thing, which is making sure that you you take 10% off even what you thought you were going to do. So if you're like, this is the ideal, you know, just like when we say you're calculating your, your one rep max on a lift and then you're using your training max, you don't go with 100% of your one RM. You take 90% of that. And you work it with that weight as your top end weight. So you have some room to grow as the program progresses. The same thing with a, a beginner. If they end up being able to do more, fantastic. You just add more weight or you make the exercise challenging via a variety of different ways. But you have room to increase the level of challenge. Whereas if you start the challenge off too high, if they're a beginner, they're going to, you know, probably get pretty discouraged or upset. Or maybe you're going to have to coach a lot more than you thought you were going to. And if they're experienced and they really know how to push themselves, well, then you're also risking like injury or tweaking something. So, For sure. I think it takes a lot of confidence. I think especially when trainers are new, they're very afraid to undershoot, right? Because yeah. they think it's a reflection of them yeah, as a yeah. trainer and they're insecure about the experience. And the but, client wants to work hard. and yeah. Right. But think yeah. about like you have a reputation as a trainer. Think about how great that client is going to feel if they are successful in what they do. And then you say for the next week, oh, great, we get to yeah. add things. We get to make this harder because you surpassed yeah. my expectations. Yeah. Overall, they just feel so much better about yeah. that. And it, and it builds trust, right? Like I, I think of so many clients I've started with who had experiences with training before. I'd come from working hard with other trainers and I tell them up front, I make the expectation very clear, you know, we're going to be conservative in the first couple of weeks and we're going to make it harder as, as you feel ready and able to. And, you know, then they tell me, I, how was it? I ask them, how was the session? How was the overall intensity? They tell me, okay, it was, it was good, but it could be harder. Cool. Good feedback for next time. Not only am I building their trust, but I'm also saying, listen, if you want this to be harder, we can make it harder. Like you have a say. It, that also means you have a say if we need to dial it back. 
Right, then they feel in control. How much yeah. more comfortable of an experience is that as yep. opposed to feeling like the trainer has all of the power and you're just walking in and yep. at their mercy, right? And the that's spreadsheet terrible. says 80% today and you're going to do 80% no matter how hard it feels. Right, <laughs> that's terrible. Yeah. Let's talk about considerations for exercises if someone is injured or they're in pain in some way. How do you approach those people? Again, it's a very general question, but yeah. I think... Yeah, trainers are very afraid of injuries, I think. Yep. So how do you determine what they can do versus what you kind of want to stay away from? Yeah, well, I think the first thing for that is the assessment. If they're walking into, you know, meeting you for the first time and they exhibit pain or they're coming to you because they have an injury and they want to overcome that, that information is vital, right, mm -hmm. to the first program that you're going to design. Doing the movement screen, finding out what movements are pain-free, what movements are painful. Um, mm -hmm. And then illustrating to them that, one of the things I do with people is I make it very clear that the objective of a movement screen is not to make you feel like garbage. It's not to make you work as hard and show you what you can't do. You already know what you can't do because you're coming to a coach to hopefully help you work on stuff. It's to highlight the areas where we, we need improvement or, and we're going to work together on that. And it's also to show you where you're actually, you've got enough stuff right now to start working. I think for people who have been in pain for a while or have an injury that they haven't really kind of overcome, so to speak, that can become part of their identity. So I'm so-and-so and I have a hurt shoulder. You know, I'm so-and-so and, -so and my, I have, this is my bad knee. I'm so-and-so and I have a bad back. You know, and I know, I know you've seen this too and there's trainers who are going to listen to this who are like, yeah, that's my one <laughs> client, totally. And how you can kind of shift their focus away from the thing that they've defined their ability by for a long time to yeah, you can focus on that, or you can look at all the other stuff, all the other room that we have to do some work, mm -hmm. right? So you'll have clients who will text you or message you and go, you know, my, I, my knee hurts. Should I cancel the session today? All the you know, time, I, I, yeah. I, I got a paper cut on my finger. Should I cancel the session? Right. Right. You're and like, in your mind, you're like, no. Like, I, you would say them, probably I would say them, which is like, you have three other limbs. Your midsection is fine. Let's get in the gym and let's do some work. Literally, part of the reason why you're there as a coach is to problem solve and to help navigate these obstacles, right? If the only time you can train is when your body is 100% ready to go, well, then you'll never train. Right. You know, I'm trying to create an adaptable mindset, one that sees the challenge, but then sees the opportunity. That has to be reflected in how I deal with tweaks and injuries and sprains and stuff. I know you you're came in with your, and your back was hurting. So we're going to make sure we're doing exercises that's not going to piss that off. But we're also going to do exercises for the other parts of your body that are totally feeling fine. And we, we need to stress them, right? We need to apply stress to your, to your body to cause it to adapt. And there's a nice trickle-down effect from that when you work with someone for a while. You're building their trust. They're also building trust in their own body because they're moving more and they're lifting and they're sweating and doing all the things they haven't done for a while. And that starts to affect their mindset and their perception of what their body can do. And then one day their back doesn't hurt as much, Yeah, you know, and you can't pinpoint the exact exercise you did or the rep range you did or, or the breathing exercise you did, but you know that like it's been a culmination of regaining that control, regaining that, that autonomy over your own body and, and knowing that you have someone there who's there to help you. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, it, it's really quite amazing. So those are the, those are the main things is like use your assessment with the person, make sure you're highlighting the opportunities, like the places where you can work hard while you make sure you don't piss off the injured spot anymore. And then always focus on the, the long-term plan. Don't focus on, you know, can I get there in six months, but what do I want to be able to 
do in six months once I'm there. If I'm only focused on how fast can I get over this injury, I'm more likely to cut corners and skimp on my rehab exercises and like not, you know, once I'm feeling better, I'll back off on training when no, that's actually when you need to keep going to, to the greater degree because you can now. For sure. There's a huge mental component to pain. The mindset that you bring to it is huge. And if you bring the mindset of I'm very honed in on it and that's what I'm focusing in on all Mm -hmm. the time and the fear that surrounds that, maybe that exercise is going to put it in pain. So now I'm afraid as I do it, Mm -hmm. that changes how your body goes into that movement, right? So it's a very delicate balance between getting someone to understand that they shouldn't be moving through pain. Like I always have that conversation with beginners about if something's bothering you, don't just keep going because you're going to injure yourself. Right. But also like, can we not focus on it so much to the Mm. point where it's becoming the only thing that's in our minds? Yeah. You don't have blinders on to it. I think, I think one of the other things that you just brought up when it comes to talking about pain is like the language around how we describe it. And this is something that I work with my clients on quite extensively. It can become a very, very black and white thing. You either have pain or you don't have pain. And if you look into any of the uh, stories with people who've had opioid addictions or, or extensive chronic pain lasting a long time, they consistently rate their pain as like 10 out of 10 or like really high. When you do a bit of digging and you actually ask them like, is it always like that? There must be times of the day where it's not like that. Can you describe that to me? And they'll say, oh, yeah, sometimes it's a six. Okay, so now we have a way of describing pain levels as opposed to pain being like an on and off switch. And I think that's very, very helpful for people. You can say, I have some pain today. It's a five out of ten. You can still go and work out. You can still go and do stuff. If it's it's a ten out of ten, maybe proceed with caution, right? But uh, I think how we describe it is very key. And I think for people who have had a lot extensive history with pain, like you said, that area, they can become so hyper-focused on that area and so hyper-focused on that sensation that it actually can get blended in with other normal sensations, which are perfectly fine. So an example of that is like someone who has back pain or has had back pain, um, they start training and they start feeling their back muscles work mm-hmm. and they associate in the low back and they actually associate that like, I'm going to injure myself. Oh, I know yeah. what this feels like. This is this is the memory that my brain has of when I did that thing and my back. I threw out my back and I was on the couch for for six days. And you can say, "Hang on, is it actually sharp stabbing? A troll is in your back with like a knife stabbing you, or is it muscles working? Is it burning? Is it stuff that we normally equate as a a good sign with exercise? Mm. If I if my bicep is burning when I'm doing curls, I'm not going, "Oh my gosh, I'm about to injure my bicep." But that's the visual or the mm-hmm. feeling that people can have where they just blend all those sensations together because for so long, pain has been the main source of input to tell them what their body is feeling. Right. So these descriptors are important yeah. because it's, there's not one type of pain either. The same way it's not an on and off switch. And it's super subjective. Yeah. You have people who are really, really tolerant and they'll push through it, like you said. And they're, you see their, their level is like they got another three or four gears. And then other people, the soon, as soon as they feel something, they're like, I, I'm done. I just want to stop. Yeah, right? so true. Yeah. So I think helping them describe what it is they're feeling, knowing, making sure they know they have options in terms of how to scale things up or down in difficulty to reflect that. And then explaining a bit more like 
and this is a longer conversation, there's a lot of really good resources, which I share with you. You can post it in the bio for this interview. But there is a lot of this stuff that happens in terms of your own perception, where we know that pain is less about tissue damage than sensitivity. And then you can look at what factors are sensitizing you to feel more pain. Exercise and movement could be one of them. So we stay away from movements that piss the area off. But we also look at beliefs you might have about pain. The whole identity thing comes in there. Social situations, your stress levels, your recovery, you know, your nutrition, previous injury, like all these things go into someone's perception and the, the language that they use to describe pain. So All very important things to think about, which is why the conversation around pain is such an interesting one, for yeah. sure. It's very human. Yeah. I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about powerlifting. Yeah. This is definitely part of your brand, so we can't yeah. not go there. <laughs> I want to know how you got into powerlifting and why you love the sport personally first. Yeah, I got into it. I think I did my first meet in 2015, 2016. Uh, At the time I was, you know, I had been training for several years, just lifting weights. At the gym I worked at, we basically put together a a team, like a powerlifting team, because we understood that, you know, people can train because of the intrinsic value um, that you know, they feel like they really enjoy the process. It's a part of their identity. It's something that they do. They see a lot of Mm -hmm. internal validation from that. But there's also something to be said about training for a specific goal and working through a process to achieve an outcome. I think that's a very valuable thing for a lot of people. And it keeps keeps them thinking about, you know, what I want to do in the future, right? It keeps them thinking forward, which is that whole long-term thing. So we started a team. We had four women and then myself. Um, and then from then on, the, the team grew. It was mostly women in the beginning, which is pretty awesome. I think the guys were too scared to like come out and, and live with us. but Because their egos are going to get hurt. Yeah, <laughs> I think they're honestly intimidated. Like we right. had <laughs> we had one woman, she, she deadlifted like 315 in her first meet. Yeah. Oh my God, that's yeah. amazing. <laughs> and the guys are going, uh, I can't do that. And then there's a the whole thing of, am I good enough to do it? Which is not about that at all. Right. right. I tell people, my new lifters that all the time. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, I, I love that I did a bunch of more meets after that, coached more people. What I love about the sport is, is how welcoming it is. You wouldn't expect to get that feeling from watching a video online of what a meet's like even, because you'll see yelling and you'll see chalk being thrown and people snorting ammonia and heavy music playing and then like red faces and grinding and like all this stuff that like is, is it very, very unique to that environment to that sport and looks um, so intimidating it looks from the very outside. intense yeah mm-hmm. but under that and around that is this overwhelming uh, environment of support and community um, where it doesn't matter if you have five pounds in the bar on each side and you're squatting versus the person who has 700 pounds in the bar and they're squatting the crowd's still going to cheer no matter what. If you're struggling and you're grinding out that lift, like they're going to get behind you. They're going to be shouting, finish it, finish it, you know, um, because effort and struggle is, we can all understand that. We all understand to some degree what it's like to work hard at something. And when you see someone working hard, it doesn't matter what the weight is. The fact of the matter is that they're doing their best at that point in time. And that's something that anyone can support. So that's, that's the main reason like why I love it. But yeah, that's awesome. You've held two powerlifting meets yourself yeah. now, and yeah. the third one's coming up very yeah, soon. Yeah, it's coming like, up uh, March 29th. Yeah, so awesome. So if you have any, uh, if you have any interest in 
getting to know what the competition environment's like. If you your coach has brought it up to you before, you're like, I don't know if I'm ready. This is the perfect opportunity to do that um, because it'll give you the competition environment without the one, uh, the uncomfortable requirement of wearing a singlet, which a lot of people don't like. And I totally agree. They're not that attractive or flattering. That's fine. Um, but you will also be able to tell, like, you know, do is this something I can actually see myself doing, right? I think there's a lot of, again, value in trying stuff out, training for a goal, trying it out, and then evaluating, is this something I actually could see myself doing longer term? Is this just a one-off? Mm-hmm. There's no harm in either of those answers because you're just helping you figure out what you're going to be able to stick to long term. So. For sure. Is that why you think that more people could benefit from training for powerlifting? Because there's so much that can be learned and gained from having an external goal and reaching it or working towards it. I think in, in the world we're in now with, with fitness where a lot of the narrative is based around aesthetics, based around achieving a certain look, based around achieving a certain body composition, based around achieving a certain physique. And those are all 100% valid. And I would never tell anyone, if that's your goal, don't pursue that because it's not my place to do that. But what I would say is if that idea or that goal is not serving you and you still want to engage in training and you still want to have a purpose to your, your sessions and you still want to go in the gym with a plan and focus on metrics that mean more to you, well, then why not shift to like a performance-oriented sport like powerlifting mm-hmm. or Olympic lifting or you know, you can list a bunch of others because no longer is your the way you're evaluating the worthiness of your training by how you look or how many abs you can see or how low your body fat is. You're evaluating by, am I making progress on my squat, bench, and deadlift? Am I staying relatively healthy? Am I moving more weight for more reps than I was last time? There's so many ways to measure that kind of progress. And I think it just shifts the focus away from only one way of looking at fitness to like, here are some other ways you can look at fitness and and performance, you know, which is, I think there's a lot of value there. And I think that's one of the main reasons why powerlifting has really, really exploded uh, in North America. Like you see way more meets now than you did when we even started, you know, even 10 years ago, you go back 10 years ago, you you wouldn't, you didn't see nearly as many competitions. And I think a lot of it has been as a result of single focus on this one aesthetic of fitness to now, here's what your body can do. Yeah, that's a great point. You've talked about how you don't believe that there's such thing as a good or a bad exercise. It just depends on whether your body is prepared for that exercise or movement, and there's no right and wrong. Mm. I've definitely posted those little things on Instagram that are a check or an X, like based on form. It's very visual and it's very external. And the idea is to help someone understand some of the very common ways that people might not perform an exercise in a way that's benefiting them as much as it could. Yeah. Um, but I want to talk more about what you mean by there being no such thing as a good exercise or a bad exercise. Yeah. Or a good form and bad form, I guess. Yeah, they really. go in the same bucket. Yeah, mm-hmm. for sure. What I would say first is use another way of describing that is if we look at nutrition, we're trying to think long term about how someone eats and we're trying to make sure that how they eat reflects the choices that are good for them and how their body feels and how their body performs. Well, then we also might not say that there's a good and bad food, right? We know that one food consumed in isolation does not have deleterious effects to any grand degree, unless, I don't know, we're not talking about eating poison here, we're talking about eating food. Yeah, that's something I've been talking about a lot on the podcast recently, actually, is not having, not labeling foods with morality and having them be good or bad, because your mentality around that is, it's it's not healthy. It's that switch, Mm -hmm. right? 
yeah. on or off, good and bad, black and white, totally. you know, extreme to extreme. Um, and so I think part of the shift that I've had as a coach, and I, and you know, I did the same thing when I was starting out too. I was like, don't lift this way, lift this way. Don't do this when you lift, do this when you lift. Don't do kipping pull-ups, you're going to get injured. You know, don't, uh, all the things you'll see online, don't do burpees, there are better options. Like, and what I came, kind of came to the conclusion of is that if you're going to use the same logic with nutrition in order to help someone break free of those, you know, that very, very dichotomous thinking and help them find a nutrition or a way of eating that works for them, that they feel the best about, that makes sense with their internal chemistry, that makes sense with their goals for their training and their physique, then you also cannot say that any one movement is good or bad in isolation. Because again, what's the biggest qualifier that determines whether or not a movement is good or bad? It's the person. Mm -hmm. It's the person doing the movement. So I know for myself, a movement like a snatch where I'm you know, pulling the bar with a wide grip from the floor to an overhead position and catching a deep squat would probably not be good, in air quotes, for my left shoulder right now. But does that mean I would say that movement is bad? Mm. Because then I'm taking my own body and my own level of capacity and skill and all the things I've developed from training and I'm applying a, a value to that that I think applies to everyone else. Yeah. And obviously we know that's not true. For sure. Right? And so I th- my big thing with that is I don't want to add more barriers to people training and moving in the gym than they already have. And I firmly believe that adding a good and bad way of looking at exercise is just another barrier. Because then you have people worried about, is this a good exercise for me? Is this not? I read this article that says burpees are bad. And then I read another one that said this, they're good. Or this influencer that I follow does burpees. Wait, wait, what, what's going on? And they're even more confused. When if you can look at exercises as just merely positions and ways we've learned how to apply stress to your body and we know we can scale that stress up or down depending on your level of readiness to do that for example if your shoulder can't go all the way overhead you know and be strong in that position maybe we don't do any really ballistic high velocity movements there so that means that maybe snatching with a kettlebell is not right for you right now or maybe a a barbell snatch is not right or maybe kipping pull-ups are not right but if someone has the you know, the mobility and the strength and the skill to do those, they're obviously not injuring themselves. And if they do experience tweaks, well, maybe it's not because of that one movement, but maybe because of a series of factors that led up to mm-hmm. that point. Because we know like one rep will not usually make, have a big effect in your body, unless it's like maybe a one rep max and it's very close to your end range or your, uh, your extreme tolerable level of your strength. Right. So we know then, well, you're the, as you push yourself harder and harder, there's, there comes with that an inherent risk of, you know, something going wrong. Mm-hmm. But that's why we say don't train at that level all the time. Don't try to max out every Monday when you go into the gym on bench press and then wonder why maybe your shoulder hurts. Maybe you're just applying too much stress with that movement. But if you did a light bench press, your shoulder would probably feel fine. So it's about finding the right level of stress with the movement to match the level of readiness that the individual has so that we can help them progress as opposed to saying that movement is entirely off limits, no matter if it's lighter, it's moderate or it's heavy or that drill you saw on, on Instagram is you can't do that at all. Where's the experimentation then? Like a lot of training I think is supposed Mm -hmm. to help people develop a mindset where they actually want to try stuff. I want to, I want to try that sport. I want to try that activity. Like like the power thing. It's the same thing. I want to try that. I want to climb a tree just because of the whim that I had in my mind. Do I need to prepare for that? Is tree climbing good? 
you know? I want to start running, you know? Okay, well, maybe you're not ready to sprint yet because you haven't run since you were a child, but can you start walking? Can you start progressively increasing the pace of your walking until you're doing a jog? Can you manage your mileage over the week so that you're not imposing more stress than your body can handle, right? But then you have people that don't run at all. Running is terrible for your knees. Running is terrible for your joints. There's a, there's a principle called like movement optimism, which I got from a, a physio called Greg Lehman, which I highly recommend in his course for all trainers and coaches that I've talked to. It's that. It's like you see all movement in this umbrella of it's all possible if you want to prepare for it. Then the question becomes, how much are you willing to devote to this? If you want to get a 300-pound deadlift, you're going to train with that goal in mind. So what's that going to cost you with all these other things, yeah. right? Yeah. Is, is the cost worth the benefit? I think I agree with everything you just said. And it highlights to me the nuance that has to go into training and the challenge that we have on social media. Mm -hmm. Because in trying to convey information over social media, it is impossible to get all of the human elements that we're talking about and the gray, yeah. the, all yeah. the shades of gray that are in there. But how do you get information across yeah. with someone understanding that? It's yeah. almost an impossible dilemma. Yeah. So it's a very interesting thing to think about as you, you know, like as I post and try to get some information across yeah. well, I can never, I have no hope of helping no. someone understand all of those layers. So and that's not, I don't, all you can do is hope it's yeah. helpful to someone, you know? It's, I think it's the wrong medium for that too. Hmm. I think it's uh, maybe an unrealistic expectation of what but that medium is for. right? That's the it problem. Is, it's, that, that's the yeah. expectation on the, the trainer. Yeah. So, and so yeah. part, part of the, how I deal with that, because I struggle with that too, for mm -hmm. sure. Like I'm like, I'm tr very careful and very deliberate with the language that I use when I post. And oftentimes what I'll end up doing is posting more questions. Let's think about this a little bit more. If this thing, this assumption we have applies, like don't let your knees go over your toes. Where does it not apply? That it, mm -hmm. Where does it not cause that negative effect that people say, well, your knees will explode and, you know, you're, you'll have knee pain for the rest of your life. Well, then you can't walk downstairs. Right. Because your knees go past your toes every time you walk downstairs. Right. You know, if you're going to say that, you know, uh, pressing behind your neck is, is bad for your shoulders. Well, we have tons of examples of people doing Olympic thing where they do that movement on a regular basis. And yeah, some of them are genetic outliers and some of them are very experienced individuals, but there are a lot of people doing that don't have shoulder pain. So it's more about your shoulder not being prepared for that. Mm -hmm. And so the, the big thing I try to make sure I do when I post is come across with as little assumptions as possible. And if I am going to assume something, have very good evidence that to support that idea. As opposed to like, let's assume that the body is fragile versus viewing the body as very strong, very robust, very adaptable. Yeah, I think I, I definitely agree with a lot of that because I it always bothers me when people talk in absolutes, you feel like we're living in life and I see that happening all the time. Like flexion isn't actually bad for everyone. Like yeah. <laughs> some yeah. people need more flexion. You yeah. know, it's just, we, we love to put these like yeah. rules on things and yeah. it just, it will never always apply. Yeah. And it's because of the, I think the field is so young. Mm. Like hmm. training Would is- Would you a, call it young? Yeah. Oh yeah. Well, think about it. If you talk to your parents, did they have a personal trainer when they were, you know, in their twenties, thirties? Good point. Nope. So it's very young. And as it is a young field, there's so much information coming in. And a lot of people haven't developed the filter yet to disseminate what's worthwhile, what's not, what's accurate, what's inaccurate. So uh, we'll get better at it over time. I, have, I firmly believe that. But I think that that's where you see these norms or these models that have been pushed for a while getting a lot of pushback now. 
because people are like, actually, we know more now. We can say that maybe that wasn't the most accurate thing. But we can also admit that at the time we, we did it because that was the best thing we knew. Right. Yeah. Right, for sure. Okay, Paul, believe it or not, we're getting to the end of this hour already. But I have two final questions for you. The first one is, I read somewhere that you had a goal to get kicked out of an all-you-can-eat sushi restaurant. <laughs> has that happened yet? No, it has not oh. happened, and I'm very ashamed to admit that. <laughs> I mean, that's we'll call that a long-term stretch goal. Okay, we'll, keep, we'll check back in again on that one. Okay, my last question. I ask everyone this that comes on the podcast. What makes you excited to get out of bed in the morning? Yeah, well, truth be told, I, I do love sleeping in whenever possible. <laughs> okay, but, morning slash afternoon, I don't yeah, know. Yeah, <laughs> I know, exactly. Whenever you get up is when you right. get up. Um, but the one thing I will say that I do really gets me excited to get up out of bed in the morning is that every day is an opportunity for me to be the coach that I never had. And I didn't grow up with a lot of coaching. I grew up with some bad soccer coaches, and that was my real, my only experience with coaching. I had my one of my best friends at the time teach me how to drive standard in my car when I struggle with it so much. Um, and I know it's a dying breed of car driver right now, so this is dating me a bit. But in, in, in a matter of an hour, he taught me how to drive. And I had struggled with that for so long before that. Wow. And it was all, again, it was all about finding the feeling between the clutch and the gas and finding that sweet spot where the, the gears would bite and then you just go. And I'm like, that is so simple, but it's simple because it intrinsically made sense to me. And so that was one of many examples where I'm like, I want that for other people. And I want that for the people that I work with. I think a lot of people have this idea that coaching, there's no point in having a coach. I, I can, can just figure, go do it. I'll I can it up go online. on Instagram, get a workout, yeah. and then I can get a program offline, and I can just go do it. And yes, you can, 100%. And I'm fully uh, about people taking ownership over their own process. Um, but I also think that you don't know what you're missing. Just having that feedback and having that support and having that person to just check in with and be like, hey, this is not working for me, or I really struggle with this. You know, can you help me with this? I, I get to do that now for people in my circle, people that trust me with their time and with their bodies in a way that I didn't have. Mm -hmm. So that's what gets me excited to get up in the morning. That's awesome. I love it. If people want to get in touch with you, they want to be coached by you, they want to join, they want to sign up for the powerlifting meet, yeah. they want to join powerlifting club. Yeah. How do they go about doing that? Where do they find you? Uh, I'm pretty easy to find. Uh, on Instagram, I'm paul.hines, H-Y-N-E-S. Uh, my website is hinesperformance.ca. If you go on my Instagram, you can find my uh, link tree where I have the sign-up link for the powerlifting meet if you're so inclined to come out and try your hand at that. Yeah, I'm pretty easy to find. I think uh, privacy settings for a trainer are kind of not a thing. So. <laughs> True. <laughs> yeah, you want to be found. It's kind of the point. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Awesome, Paul. Well, thank you so much. This has been great. Thanks, Casey. Thanks so much for listening to this week's episode of How Do You Feel? If you enjoy what you're hearing on the podcast, I would love if you could do two things. First of all, make sure that you rate, subscribe, and review the podcast. Those ratings and reviews really go a long way. And then second, I ask that you share it with someone in your life that you think could benefit from the stuff that we talk about on How Do You Feel? As a reminder, be on the lookout for an episode every Monday morning. You can find the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and many other podcasting platforms. All right, everybody, have an awesome week. And as always, make sure that you get out there and do something that makes you feel good today.